Many urban Americans have come to believe that there's a growing chasm separating urban and rural America. While urban America bounds ahead, rural America, many assume, is being left behind, struggling with material and spiritual impoverishment and cultural confusion. This week on Hardly Working, Brent talks with University of Southern California professor Elizabeth Currid-Halkett, who dispels some of the myths around the so-called urban-rural divide. Currid-Halkett and Brent discuss her fantastic book, The Overlooked Americans, The Resilience of Our Rural Towns and What It Means for Our Country, which Brent reviewed for The Dispatch back in September. As you'll hear, rural America is doing a lot better than you might think. Elizabeth Kurt Halkett, thanks for joining me on Hardly Working. It's a pleasure to be here, Brent. Well, uh, it's a delight to have you. I really enjoyed your book, and it's informing a lot of my thinking in a in a variety of areas that I am doing research on, and and it, trying to interact with some of the communities uh, uh, of the type that you were um, you were attempting to understand through your book. So it's it's just been enormously helpful. I want to start out, um, I always ask this question of people who come on the podcast, sort of give us um, their biography, but I think that it's particularly on point for you just because of the nature of the book that we're talking about. Where did you come from? How did you get from uh, a small town in central Pennsylvania to a major university in San Diego uh, Los Angeles. Los Angeles, uh, <laughs> and, and that's a that's an amazing journey. And so I'd like you to talk yeah. about that um, in in terms of what helped you get from where you were to where you are. Oh, thank you, Bren. Um, so my parents are. I was born in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and for a long time I was kind of embarrassed by that, um, which you know. I now I feel really proud of it. But at the time, you know, when I was growing up, it felt like, oh, you know, everyone calls people from West Virginia hillbillies and it wasn't very cosmopolitan. My parents are Irish immigrants and they um, my mother came over as a physician and my father came over for graduate school. So they were pretty poor uh, for a long time. Um, You know, they had three young children and they you know, we're trying to get through, kind of go to graduate school, get through residency. And my mom, when she finished her residency, she got these two job offers. And one was um, in Boston with a teaching hospital associated with Harvard. And another was in rural Pennsylvania. And they just did the math and they just, you know, they were not able to afford to live in a city. So we moved to rural Pennsylvania. And and my mom, it's funny because I talked to her about it. She always thought she would leave, but it was a really great place to raise kids. It had a big hospital that she could work at and felt excited by the work. And so we stayed and I grew up in rural Pennsylvania along the Susquehanna River, population four to 5,000 people, one of those fascinating counties because it it was very kind of classic Democrat, working class Democrat, and then it moved Republican with McCain, um, and it seems to still be that way. I'm always really interested in the polls when it comes out with Pennsylvania because I grew up there, and I get why it's one of those battleground states. I know those people, you know? So, you know, I went to college. That was different from my peers in small town America, a kind of a given, like I, it's not never, like I never had a conversation with my parents that I was not going to go to college. It was, you know, where, where are we going to go? And there was like a big book that my father would look at the best universities. And I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon and, um, and then I majored in poetry. (laughs) So I had to go to graduate school. (laughs) So I, um, I did a graduate degree in a master's in policy at Carnegie Mellon. And I was actually on my way to Washington to be in the lobbyist, environmental lobbyist. I've always been really passionate about the environment. And my advisor said, I think you're crazy. I think you should do a PhD. You love ideas. You love being my research assistant. Like, I think you should do that. I don't think you should go to Washington yet. And so I applied to one PhD program, which was at Columbia University. 
And honestly, there, but by the grace of God, I got in. I mean, I this is not false modesty. Like, I really, someone looked down upon me and I got into Columbia. And um, and I did a PhD there in urban planning. I, I was always interested in cities. And so it was really a question of, did I want to study sociology? Did I want to do more of a kind of physical um, study? Or did I want some sort of intersection like what, what Columbia offered, which was this intersection of urban planning in a conventional sense, but also really a theoretical study of cities and economic geography and economic development, which is what I love. And so I went there and it's actually kind of funny because when I was on the, you know, what they call the job market, which is like your last year of your PhD, I was working on my dissertation. I had actually gotten a book contract for my first book, which was incredibly lucky, but awesome, just really helped me. But I only applied for a few jobs. And, you know, when you're a PhD candidate, you tend to apply to a lot of jobs because they only pick one person. And I didn't apply to that many jobs. I kind of knew I didn't want to live in some place I didn't know very well. I thought LA sounded interesting, maybe Boston, you know. And I was always, always thought to myself, well, if it if it's terrible, I'll work on my book and be a, a waitress in New York. Like I have no problem. I'd been a waitress through graduate school, so I I, I enjoyed the work. And um, I my advisor was not thrilled with this career plan with all of the investment of time and resources. <laughs> um, and so USC did give me an offer and it was a great offer and the people at USC were awesome and they continue to be so. And I said, yes, and here I am in Los Angeles. Um, so who, uh, who is your, who are among your favorite urbanists? Well, the person who inspired me to get a PhD in urban planning um, is Jane Jacobs. So she wrote a really important book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And I, I love that book. I mean, it's part of the canon. So to anyone who knows cities, I'm stating the obvious. But I love that book because she really understood how cities really work. She had the courage to rise up against these like really famous urban planners of the time who had a very different idea of Robert how things Moses ought to be. And, yeah. Oh yeah, even um, even Lewis Mumford. I mean, again, great thinkers, but you know, people who really didn't understand Jacobs' organic understanding of cities, which still persists. If we're talking about how in a, a successful city works, it really does work in the Jacobs model. It's just not always easy to pull off. But the other thing I loved about that book, Jacobs did not have a PhD. I don't even think she had a college degree. She was married to an architect. She did the thing we all should be doing as social scientists, which is that she just looked at the world. She sat on her stoop and she studied how the world actually worked. And I think that's something we lose sight of with all of our data sets and our models and our theories. It's like, but but there's the world, like right outside your door. <laughs> Go look at it. <laughs> so I've always been really inspired by that. Yeah, I, I love that. She's absolutely my at the top of my list uh, as well. And I that that organic understanding of how human communities operate is yeah it's priceless uh to to doing the right thing which often seems to be like you know not and i think this was in jacob's work you know like you, this is not a slum this is a community no. where people live totally. uh and they get their first rung on the ladder and they you know they it these are vibrant living organisms um yeah. uh and I just have always loved her um, for that work, uh, and it says so much to me about the way that you have written this book, that there's that appreciation for the organic nature, not just of cities, but of rural areas as well. You know, yeah. they function, you know, they have their own ecosphere that they're, um, that they're operating in. So that, yeah. that's amazing. I agree with you. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I think I think maybe the through line there is that it's about taking places and people for who they are. Mm. Mm. You know, not superimposing an idea and just saying, okay, like, so what is going on here? Um, you know, for, for those who, um, you know, maybe aren't going to read 
the book uh, necessarily. Um, talk a little bit about how it came about and and how you were affected by uh, the pandemic uh, in your plan for writing this book. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I this book really started brewing in my head in um, 2016 and and I it was, you know, the election of Trump. Uh, he, you know, he really kind of shocked everyone. Everyone was so shocked. And everyone, you know, thought, oh my goodness, like what happened there? And how can we, you know, correct for this? And, you know, particularly elites. I mean, liberal elites just couldn't believe what had happened. And I grew up in small town America and I just didn't see it that way. I didn't, first of all, I, I look, I am a card-carrying Democrat. I worked for Senator Clinton as a graduate student. And I, I have nothing against Republicans in any way, just, just getting that all out there. But I didn't think that the people who voted for Trump were terrible people. I felt we didn't understand what was going on. And I didn't think that they hated liberals and that's why they voted for Trump. In fact, I knew that was not the case. I knew that there was something different. Um, and so growing up there, I think is what gave me that perspective because most of my friends have grown up in cities or their suburbs. They live in cities. They did, I don't have a lot of friends who grew up in small town America full stop outside of the ones that are still there. And so, I was really passionate about understanding and embarking upon a project of understanding rural America. And so what I ended up doing was the thing I love to do the most, which is talk to people. So, you know, I do I do a lot of numbers in my world and I study a lot of census and Bureau of Labor Statistics data, but my favorite kind of research is interviewing people, spending time with people. And so I did, so this was the, the vision. Um, and then COVID hit and like, I couldn't do the drive across the country as I had planned. So what I did instead was talk to people on the phone. And I started out with a preliminary set of folks who could get me um, people to talk to. And then those people would give me people and then those people. And so I essentially kind of traveled America by phone. And, you know, it's interesting because you know, I've done a lot of in-person interviews and, you know, you get your 45 minutes with them and that's it. And you may follow up, but it's very, very rare that that contact keeps happening. With these people, I, I talked to many of them multiple times on the phone, over email, a follow-up question. Even after my book came out, I would be interested in a poll that had come out about, you know, the, you know, Trump and Biden, and I want to get their view. And it was just a totally free-flowing relationship. And, and, and by the way, it continues to be that way, you know, should I want it. Um, and so that's how I came to write the book. What do you think is the perception of rural America versus the reality that you discovered in your research? I think the perception of rural America, certainly by the liberal media, um, is that it is angry, that voting for Trump was sticking it to the liberal meritocrats, that it feels left behind, and that it is resentful on a whole host of issues from gay marriage to immigration to the environment. Um, and that part of this is because it has been economically, socially, and culturally left behind. I didn't find that at all. I mean, I found economically real viability. I mean, that, the numbers don't lie. Like I played around with the numbers so many different times in different ways that a lot of rural America is thriving. I mean, there are parts, the deep south, um, Appalachia, these are, these are parts of the country that are in real trouble. Now, as someone who studies economic development, this is a problem if we call it like an urban rural divide, because you can't do bespoke economic development initiatives if you talk about it like that like Iowa doesn't need economic development in the way that Kentucky does in any way like I Iowa is actually a very thriving place to live really good quality of life so 
I think that was one thing that was really clear was on economic measures. You actually saw higher home ownership. You saw um, comparable median incomes, lower unemployment in our rural uh, areas, and they are less educated. Folks who live in rural America are less educated. However, that doesn't seem to be translating into being left behind. It's it, they're different jobs, you know. Um, the other thing that is really interesting to me is that even the jobs that are there. So you know, obviously, a lot of rural America is powered by agriculture. Um, to a certain extent mining, but even some of those kind of global city jobs like, um, you know, uh, finance or commercial banking, they spill over into rural America in a surprising way. So there's more of that than you would suspect. And I, you know, as a, as a student of urban economic geography, like I've been trained to understand this idea of a global city network leaving out its hinterlands. And when you look at the data, it's not quite that story, at least now. I don't know if it was 40 years ago, but it's certainly, actually, I know that um, when, I, when I'm recalling the data in my head now, that the growth has increased as it's increased with urban America, it's increased with rural America. So in lockstep, you see these this kind of economic restructuring happening at the same time. Um, so those are two big things. The other thing is, you know, when you talk to rural Americans, they're not, um, they're also not angry. So, you know, even, so we've got this economic piece, which is actually rural America's doing pretty well. Okay, so are rural Americans angry? No, they're not. I mean, they're well aware of how looked down upon they are, um, but they live meaningful lives like, people who live in cities and their values on some of the very basic fundamentals of humanity are actually pretty similar to those who live in New York or Los Angeles, you'd be surprised. Um, but other things matter to them more. You know, religion is maybe not significantly more practiced in rural America, but it's a very important cultural signifier. It's a huge part of their cultural capital. So I would say some of those were some of the big, big themes that I took away from my research. Uh, let's, can we just drill down a little bit into the economics? Um, because as I was reading your book, I was it felt like you were saying, you know, when you kind of adjust for cost of living, the gap between rural and urbanized America is not nearly as great as we think. Is that is that a correct reading of your... Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, think about how expensive our cities are. Even just, let's take the cost of a house in Los Angeles or Manhattan. I'm not gonna get it exactly right, but I believe what I read was the average price of a house in Los Angeles is a million dollars. So if the average cost of a house in where I grew up is $150,000, that's a big difference. You don't need as much of a mortgage, you don't need as much of a down payment, okay? Let alone, the different kinds of amenities. I mean, you know, in Los Angeles, it's completely normal to spend $7 on a latte. I mean, you'd literally pay, if you paid half of that in where I grew up, that would be a lot. So I think it's really important to see that like everything's just less expensive. And so, and also, and this is a, a larger kind of story of, I'm thinking of kind of Ed Glazer's work on consumer cities. Like, you know, there's less of those kinds of consumption options in, in in small towns too, that doesn't make them less meaningful, interesting places to live, but it means that there's not as much need to spend to be a part of those worlds. Um, their schools may be good or bad. I happen to go to a very good rural public school, um, but you know, the same for our cities. I mean, our, our city's public schools aren't brilliant. So then let's say you're one of those urban professionals who's putting your kids through private school. That's an enormous cost. It's not even on the radar if you, you go to grow up in small town America. So uh, adjusting for cost of living, inflation, et cetera, the gap is not, uh, is not as great. The gap, so what is the gap? Is the gap cultural? primarily in your view? Uh, and and how does that, if it is, how does that cultural gap manifest between urban and rural America? So yeah, I think it is cultural. So here, here's what I mean about, about that. So if you actually look at how urban and rural folks 
respond to questions. And I'm using the general social survey from the University of Chicago. Um, they, this is a great data set to understand opinions and values across time. If you look at that, you actually see enormously similar responses on environment, on social policy, um, on tolerance towards different groups. Um, there are certain areas where you see more support for, say, gay marriage amongst people who live in cities. But they are not cultural universes away, okay, if you look at this data. And if you talk to people, it's the same. I mean, they don't use catchphrases like environmentalism and organic farming. Like one of my favorite folks that I interviewed was a guy named Craig Parker, and he was in Iowa. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about like where you get your food. And he said, you know, I get it really from my backyard and, you know, I, I hunt in my fields. And I said, well, is it organic? He said, I mean, pretty much. I don't know. I think my daughter-in-law who lives in Los Angeles, I don't know her, but she happens to live in LA. I, I mean, she'd have a cow. I don't know the fertilizer. I'm not so sure. Point being, Craig is obviously like a bona fide environmentalist, a conservationist. He just doesn't use the terminology that, you know, urbanites use to self-identify as such. He doesn't have the tote bag. He's not shopping at Erewhon or Whole Foods, but he's probably doing more for the environment. <laughs> um, so when you actually talk to folks, they, they are actually acting and behaving in terms of their actual actions very similarly. And, um, and their values align a lot with what, you know, I call them the aspirational class of, of um, cities. You can call them bogos if you want to use David Brooks's term, meritocrats, the same kinds of values. Here's the difference. That is not a part of their cultural capital. So if we think about cultural capital as the amassing of your knowledge, education, kind of resources, not necessarily economic, but cultural resources, there are differences in cultural capital. Now, I actually, in my last book, The Sum of Small Things, spent a lot of time talking about the value of upper middle class cultural capital, the fact that it essentially reproduced privilege, right? Like traveling to Italy, being able to write about it, you know, taking violin lessons, this is all cultural capital. It's the cultural capital that gets you into an Ivy League and the cultural capital of rural America. I didn't even really think about that much despite growing up there. But what I started thinking about with this book, which is kind of stating the obvious, is everyone has cultural capital. Everyone has cultural capital. My cultural capital does not matter to small town America. What I, if I come in talking about reading a great article on the Dispatch or reading an article in the New York Times, that matters a lot in my universe of academics and, you know, urban folks who are really engaged in that stuff, but it's, it's not what matters there. The, the problem in this country is not that we don't have the same values. It's that we value less the cultural capital of rural America. It's like really looked down upon. Like lots of people in cities believe in God. They just don't talk about it in the way that you do in rural America. So that's not a value we have to say we disagree upon. A lot of people are on the same page there. But the fact that rural Americans embrace their religion in an overt way is sneered at. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, we, that's a whole other area to talk about extreme Christian nationalism. And that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about folks who go to, go to church every Sunday and they celebrate it and they have their potlucks. That's like laughed at. And, and it shouldn't be. It's just a different, it's just different. Yeah, that's very, very strange to imagine people laughing at that kind of expression of community uh, exactly. you know, that, that's, that's pretty important, uh, way for people to connect, um, with one another. And it's, you know, um, I, urbanites have their ways of doing that, right? It's not like yeah. they, it, you know, they're, they're not a different species. Um, they, they're humans that require connection to other human beings. Um, so yeah. everybody's doing it one way or another. I was really intrigued with, with what you wrote about the role of language, um, in this and uh, it's really it stayed with me it's continuing to resonate with me about how language is power uh, and it's a kind of power that gets wielded by urbanites over people in rural areas um, you know like the, it, 
the nature of language in elite settings is that it's constantly changing and adjusting. Uh, and yeah. if you aren't up on the latest change or adjustment in the language, it's really kind of a faux pas. And of course, mm -hmm. making the move from a rural area in, into an urban area or into that vocabulary that elite culture uses around hot button issues is a huge barrier in and of itself. Um, it is a way of drawing boundaries um, around communities. So I, I agree with you. That was something that I was very conscious of is that, and I don't, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on this concept of woke. I, I think in some ways I'd like to believe it's kind of running its course, you know, um, people on the right and left are both wary of its implications. Um, but I do, I think language is one of the greatest cultural and socioeconomic signifiers, mm. how we describe things, um, whether we are aware of terminology to use. And even with um, the advent of, I'm going to use the phrase, greater sense, cultural sensitivity and greater political correctness in the right ways, right? That just because someone isn't aware doesn't make them a bad person. Mm. I mean, we are, you know, I, I work in a university environment, so I am on the frontiers of knowing these changing cultural norms. We are expected to absorb them. And I'm also constantly like, did I say the right thing? Is that appropriate? I want to do right. I don't want anyone to be offended. And that's become really, really important in the academic environment. But I'm, I'm the first, I see it before anyone in rural Pennsylvania is going to see it. And I, I don't think folks in rural Pennsylvania, if they, you know, misspeak, that they're they should be ridiculed or told that they're bad people yeah was, i mean they're just you know it's a i think you're right about that with regard to language it's so interesting i saw this just this little blurb yesterday as i was scrolling on my phone of, of dolly parton talking about the need for forgiveness around yes. this around this language question like it doesn't make you a bad person not to know the right word or not to put the X at the end of Latina, uh, Latinx, you know, those kinds of, exactly. you know, and that it doesn't signal, it does not signal that you're racist or that you are yes. um, a, a, engaging in some sort of exclusion not to be able to do that. And our, the appropriate response is to say, I'm going to observe this. I observe this without judging it and without imputing to it more meaning than I should. Um, because it's really not fair. Um, so anyway, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think about like if I went into someone else's church of a different religion and I misspoke about some order of events that, I, you know, that I didn't know. And yet that doesn't mean I don't want to know. And it doesn't mean my intention isn't good. Yeah. No, exactly. I think our going in position should be most people's intention is good. Right, I mean, right, right. The tail left, tail right, not so much. But I think the vast majority of people have good intentions. Right. Assume good intent until you are absolutely sure otherwise. You know, it's yes. like, uh, I think that's uh, that's the right way to go. Um, I, another aspect of the book that really resonated with me, and I, I referenced this earlier, but I can't, I come from a very small town in Oregon. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it was small then. It was 2,000 people the entire time I was there, um, you know, for 20 years. It was 2,000 people. Now it's just been absorbed into suburban Portland, and it, um, it's it, 25,000 people or whatever it is. Wow. So, But it was a very small town. I mean, I had a graduating class of 120 people um, uh, from my high school. And... Uh, and um, I, you know, I, I don't stay in close touch with people there, um, but I, you know, I'm on Facebook. I'll see, you know, classmates, you know, and, uh, and I look at some of them and I think that was a, that person that I knew in high school is really smart and really able. And, uh, I, I believe they're having quite happy lives. If you can judge by anything, 
uh, anything by what you see on on social media. So I'm not saying that, boy, they really missed out or something like that. But one of the points that you make in your book is is sort of like we're, we're leaving a lot of human capital on the table in these communities, you know, like people who are extremely talented um, and able, like you were, with the proper kind of support and encouragement, able to do a lot of really cool and interesting stuff. Uh, and yet there there doesn't seem to be uh, a culture of aspiration uh, in, in, in large parts of rural America. There wasn't in, my, in the community I grew up in. Uh, and and it's unusual for people to then move on uh, from those settings and do something else with their lives, and and that that's a kind of a limiting thing um, at, on, at an individual level. It's a, it can be a limiting thing. It, first of all, did I get that right? Second, what yeah. what how should we be responding to that? It's just like hands off. People are going to find their way, their level. Uh, and they're going to be, you know, they're going to find the thing that makes them most content. Um, or is there a role for trying to uh, find ways of increasing the level of aspiration in in these communities? So I think you, I mean, you bring up some really excellent points, and you certainly um, understood my point of view. This is a really tough one, and it's a it's a sort of existential one, isn't it? Which is you know, we kind of know that going to a top 25 school and making a gazillion dollars doesn't make you happy. (laughs) So maybe they got the joke, which is like, I've got my family, I can afford my house, and I get to see sunsets most nights. I mean, that that's probably a pretty great life. But you bring up something and I, um, I interviewed Raj Shetty for my book. And we had this conversation. And of course, he this past summer, had a, a paper come out looking at um, uh, who gets into top universities and finding that it really is these top, top income groups that have a real boost. Now, again, we're not surprised, but there's the smoking gun, you know? Um, but here's, here's the thing. Um, I think we're in this tough spot because I think both plenty of children who come from meritocrat families who have parents who are lawyers and alma mater, Ivy League alma maters are expecting the same of their kids and their kids may not want to do that. We are, there's that great book, Far From the Tree, which it's not that we reproduce, we produce. (laughs) So we are producing like the whole humans that are themselves and they may not want to go to law school like dad. Um, And so I think there's that going on along with the fact that on the other hand, you've got a bunch of kids in small town Arkansas or Kentucky who are incredibly gifted in an academic way and yet they don't have the channels for it to manifest. And so I do think that we have to figure out, as I feel for all of our children in the world, that they have opportunities. It's it's the opportunity to not do it or to do it should be for everyone. So when I think about issues of equity, I'm thinking, you know, the, the kid whose parents can write the check to go to USC, um, he should also have the opportunity to not do that if he doesn't, if he genuinely doesn't want to do that. If he wants to be a carpenter or an artist, he should have that opportunity in the same way that the kid whose only opportunity is to work in his dad's mine or as a carpenter in rural America has the opportunity to go to USC. Like it should be that there's this, these channels. now. I don't know how you accomplish this. There's a really interesting organization, um, Dave McCullough's, um, I think it's called the American Exchange Project, where he's actually, and I, I'm probably not getting the details completely correct, but his idea is how do you mend divides in America where you get kids from different parts of this country to interact with each other and, and kind of see a sort of shared sense of being Americans, being kids and so forth, rather than these divides. And I'm just wondering if there's some version of that, a kind of national program that would give those opportunities. Um, We've actually seen this. um, uh, There's an organization called the Posse Foundation, which um, they found that kids who grow up in uh, lower income, predominantly urban environments um, who 
want to go to college, one of the things that's really hard is if they go on their own, that it's really great to have social capital. And so the program essentially gets kids who are kind of friends that are college ready to go to school together, which they believe increases their mm-hmm. chance of success. So the kind of idea that kind of social innovation exists in this country, and I think it's not a bad idea to figure it out for rural America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, you know, reflecting in my own experience, uh, it's just like the, if there hadn't been like the the high school counselor who kind of you know, took hold of me and said, you know, what you love here, you know, the the kinds of things that you're interested in, that's really important. Yeah. You know, you should try to develop that. Yeah. Rather than, you know, um, what, what, why would you be interested in history? It, it, what are you going to do with that? I hate that. That's the knockdown question of, you know, the drunk uncle at Thanksgiving. um, Yeah dinner who's like challenging your you know, sort of the basis of who you are uh, and and communicating that what you're interested in isn't really worthwhile and I think that again this is a this is not particular to rural America this is a problem you know across the board I mean it could be like you said for the child of the attorney the high power attorney um, I want to be a carpenter yeah like why why would you do that you know that you're you're limiting yourself well what if you're really gifted to be a carpenter exactly. what if you what if that's the thing that you are going to it's going to get you out of bed every morning and you're going to be excited about your life um and so i just that's what i want for every young person yeah. in america yeah. is to like have their interests their passions their you know, to have that validated and say, how do we develop that? Yeah. You may not be able to make a living at it, but you sure don't want to ignore it. You know, yeah. that's a really a recipe for unhappiness. I think so, that's very good. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally yeah. agree with you on that one. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. So we're getting close to the end here. Um, and uh, this, I wanted to make sure we got to this question um, because over the weekend, the New York Times published a poll of swing states in America, many of which are the very states that uh, uh, that you would have been interviewing people in and talking to people in. And, and if not, you're talking to people like the people that are being talked to in these polls. But the polls found that in these swing states that Trump has a substantial lead or a outside the margin of error lead uh, now uh, in these in, in most of these um, swing states and uh, you know the alarm bells are ringing hard uh, once again what's wrong uh, what's what happened uh, what's going wrong in America I'd be interested to have any reflections that you have on that um, on that poll well I I've thought a lot about it and of course it really corroborates the poll before it in the summer which re- showed the same thing. The Times Siena poll back in, I don't know, was it August, reported the same concern. In fact, that one, I think, focused primarily on Trump compared to other Republican candidates. Um, so my view is this. It's obviously a problem for a lot of people, myself included. I, that, that's, not, that's not a good setup. Um, I think what's happening is we are not understanding why people are voting for Trump. And I think one of the problems, at least with the liberal media, is, and certainly I remember, a, it wasn't a review of my book, but it was a reader's comment of my book, said something to the effect of, she wants us to understand Trump voters, I don't want to understand them. I, I hate them, or something to that effect. Mm. And there is the problem. You know. If our knee jerk is you voted for Donald Trump and he caused mayhem in our country, if that's your view, and we don't like you because you are part of the problem, that's not going to make people change their vote. And he has reached out to people who have felt ignored. And look, this is Max Weber, the charismatic authority. It's not really about reality about it's about 
how someone connects to a population and in some ways they connect they are able to connect because no one else has so that's i think so there's kind of a twofold problem here one is that i think certainly rural america which drives a lot of trump's votes um and has often driven the republican vote don't get me wrong in general it's it has always support or it has over the years become more and more republican um but if we're really it's not republicans that are concerned if trump's or trump is the problem it, what happens is that you've got folks who don't feel like anyone else is talking to them and you've got a democratic democratic party who who comes across as incredibly elite and disdainful and doesn't hide their their dislike of trump voters whereas my view is i don't know i think you want to understand trump voters because if you understand why people voted for trump and why they're going to vote for him again if they feel heard and seen then you might find that they're able to see another candidate too but if they're continually castigated and ugh, you know to done with you because you're you're uh you voted for trump well that's that's a problem, you know. I mean, that that means that they're not. There's no motivation to see another candidate. Yeah, it's 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 so complicated, right? I mean, uh, the you know, you talked earlier about how uh, rural voters are, aren't angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not resentful. They're not those. They're not you know all of those you know the basket of deplorable, um, uh, bitter clingers that. Um, rural Americans have been portrayed to be uh, by um, by liberal elites, progressive elites, uh, and yet I think that is increasingly the case uh, that they are kind of angry um, because they they got the guy that they wanted. That guy was. Uh, governed very badly and received a lot of bad press and a lot of, you know, piling on uh, against him. Uh, and and I think that I, I'm just wondering whether people haven't actually become more angry over time because of the reaction, you know, the 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 negative polarization effect, um, you know, uh, yeah. that has that has actually turned into anger over time. So I think that's, Brent, I think that's an excellent possibility. I mean, I really, I think that's yeah. an, a good observation there. What I want to float though, maybe it's not anger, as in like that kind of like, you know, the way in which it's written about, this mm-hmm. rage from rural America. Mm-hmm. But maybe instead it's, that if you know you're not like, like we get one vote. So like, you know, <laughs> if you're like, oh, those Democrats don't like me and think I'm a big loser because I live in rural Pennsylvania um, and no one's bothered to show up here and talk to me. I guess I'm just going to vote for the other guy who has. So it may, you know, you can't, we attach a lot of emotion to our votes. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure yeah. we always know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Uh, we do. I know I get very emotional about voting these days. I mean, I do too. Uh, but I'm just like when I talk to the folks in rural America, a lot of them are like, "Why would Why would I vote for for Biden?" I mean, it's not a. It's not a. Ah, they're terrible. It's more just like, no. I mean, Trump. You know, he understands me. You know, that's sort of more the sentiment I I get. I mean, even from by the way, even from the diehard, twice voting for probably thrice voting for Trump's supporters are not, um, I've never gotten a whiff of anger. Mm. That's, so, you know, uh, again, it's still a sample. I'll give it that. Right, right. I, uh, I This morning I was listening to New York Times podcast. Uh, oh, the Daily, the, I love the, it. Yeah, the guy who did the poll. Um, and about halfway through, it really got to the, the money section of his analysis as far as I was concerned because he said, look, you know, the, 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 not the headline, but the, the, the kicker on this was look at how many young people, Latinos and African American or blacks are saying they're, you know, they've, they're in favor of Donald Trump. You know, like we've never seen these levels of support. But he pointed out that if you unpack those numbers just a little bit, the real issue is that Biden isn't far enough left for them. 
Oh my uh, goodness. And that. So they, they go are... to the super right? I'm really confused. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like if you put Kamala Harris's name in there instead of Biden's, then the coalition is kind of magically comes back together, right? That's wild. Um, and, and I said, you know, I said to myself, it's like, that means that when you actually get into the voting booth, those voters, they might not vote, and that's another problem. Yeah. Uh, but they may, there's just no way that those voters who would prefer Kamala Harris are going to vote for Donald Trump if they vote. They're going to they're gonna swing back and, and be in Biden's column just because it'll be a comparison then, um, an actual living comparison of what am I, which side am I on basically um, at that point. And is that then, and I guess the implication then is, because um, I haven't yet listened to The Daily today, but I, I, I do at some point during my mm. day, um, uh, is the implication there that so that we shouldn't be as alarmed by the poll as we initially oh, I think are? They, I think they're plenty alarmed, uh, and I yeah. think they're, they're right to be alarmed. Uh, but these numbers are showing, you know, 20% of the black vote going to, uh, going to Donald Trump, I don't think are really... Uh, realistic, and I don't think that he's, you know, within one point on the eighteen to thirty-fours. I just there's nothing in the last three cycles, four cycles, that would suggest that younger voters are trending that way. Uh, I think that particularly younger voters have got some issues with uh, Joe Biden not having done some of the things that they really wanted him to do, like student loan forgiveness and all. You know, yeah, the the sort of um, you know, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders wing um, of, you know, mainly younger voters, they're um, they're not happy um, with what they're getting. But that doesn't mean, I think, that they say, well, I'm going to punish the Democrats by voting, casting a vote for Donald Trump. That just doesn't seem plausible to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I am. Um, and this is a little off topic and we're running out of time, but I'd be interested in your view. I Look, I'm a Democrat, so I'm I'm biased, but I I don't think Joe Biden has done such a bad job. I mean, I don't quite understand what's going on yeah, here. I that, think he's that, a decent I, guy, and I think that's the I think that's one of the big mysteries here is that yeah. um, I mean, I just I just attribute it to Americans being in a bad mood. Um, that's over, a good way of putting it. Yeah, you know, a bad, it's a you know the hangover from the pandemic and then inflation and you know two foreign wars you know big ones going on simultaneously tends to bum everybody out and uh the president becomes the you know the foil uh for absorbing a lot of that that unhappiness so i just yeah i think people are in a bad mood and people in a bad mood will do things that they wouldn't normally do um so we'll see i mean it's a year out a lot can change but i was i was like huh yeah, I can't see those voters um, following through on that threat. Uh, they're, just, they're just not going to vote. Well, we'll uh, see, if, I if, guess. If that's, the, if that's the case, if the, if what the pollster was reporting is correct, I just don't see it happening. But uh, I didn't think Trump would win the first time. So. Well, I wanted to ask you, because you're at a conservative think tank. Um, I'm mystified that he has the Republican essentially, I mean, we don't know yet, but is the kind of presumptive Republican nominee. I mean, the other candidates, look, they're not my cup of tea just because of being a Democrat, but I I don't understand. They are better candidates. I I mean, I, that would be my layman view. I'd be very interested. I assume you're more conservative, like your view on how this has happened. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm not sure I'm a great barometer on this because uh, I was, you know, um, on the warpath against Trump in the primary in 2015. I just thought he was, you know, charlatan. And um, anyway, so I was never um, I was never in that camp, but I th- I think that it goes back to that negative polarization problem. Is like they now feel like uh, he was treated so unfairly uh, that uh, many Republican voters, sixty percent of them, if you believe the uh, the polls now, it's just like we're just going to nominate him kind of out of spite, you know, wow. um, and. Uh, 
I mean, they, I think they know in their heart of hearts that, you know, he's a liar and <laughs> all the things that we, yeah. you know, that he's demonstrated so amply. But, um, you know, they're more, I think the average Republican voter is now more interested in punishing Democrats than almost any other. You're kidding um, me. Any other value. So. Huh. So my my rural Americans are um, <laughs> hopefully. Well, it's, they're, it's not, they're not just rural Americans, right? Yeah. There's an awful a lot, lot of, of suburban yeah. voters who feel this this way. Uh, as a you know, uh, uh, Republican, um, you know, faith, party faithful who, uh, yeah, they feel they. I think they definitely feel this way. So, well, wouldn't that be the interesting surprise story that it's not the rural uh, Republicans that are angry, it's the suburban and yeah. urban Republicans? You know, it, it, Biden won in 2020 because he assembled a coalition of urban and suburban against yeah. the rural areas, right? Yeah. Uh, you cannot govern this country from rural America on its own. Yeah. It, yeah. it has to be in coalition with suburban voters if you're going to yeah. do it. And uh that's another weakness I see in the, you know, sort of the doom saying is that I don't see, I mean, I just don't see anybody, I don't see Trump as having made any serious um, inroads among particularly suburban women uh, who just recoil um, uh, from him. So we will see. We've got a year. We're going to find out. Um, and um, in the meantime, we've got your excellent book. Thank to you. to help us, uh, you know, think a little bit and think a little bit more clearly about um, rural America. I, uh, I I still struggle with the vocabulary of overlooked America or over. You are the, America. like the third person who said that to me. Yeah, yeah, and I I, the, I keep coming back to beloved America. You know, yeah. this is. So much of what we think of ourselves as a nation is drawn from these, um, from the rural experience. Yeah. Uh, and uh, anyway, it's been a great encouragement to me to kind of um, think again uh, about uh, uh, about kinds of people that we both grew up with, and yeah. um, and we know them to be excellent people. So hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks again for being on with us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It, it really was such a lovely conversation. Thank you, Brent. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.